This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Today we are bringing you a conversation with Jonathan Rauts from the Global Equity Conviction Fund at New Capital, which is a fund within EFG, our parent company. That's right. So Jonathan is the lead portfolio manager for the New Capital Global Equity Conviction Strategy, and he's responsible for over $4 billion in assets. So this is a quality and growth style strategy that is positioned well to navigate through the next cycle after the Fed starts to ease. And with this, they actually see significant tailwinds coming through from some of the short duration stocks and lifestyle and luxury names in the portfolio. The other advantage is their bottom-up conviction framework that is applied to stocks as an individual business risk score, which you will go into in more detail in this episode. But essentially, they are buying the best businesses at attractive valuations. Which we love. We love that, right? So what we'll do in this episode and what you'll hear Jonathan break down is that they clearly break down the opportunities that they're seeing in the market and their portfolio. So we're going to talk about a few different sectors and themes. Firstly, digital revolution, healthcare revolution, clean and efficient resilient supply chains, luxury and lifestyle goods, and then short duration stocks. Given we are what we think is, you know, the point of time being global peak interest rates, we thought it was a really timely conversation to jump on the phone with Jonathan to talk more about the global economy, earnings expectations, valuations. And, you know, growth, is it dead or not? And as Jonathan coins it, you know, growth quality, there's still some value to be had. That's it, quality growth. Now, a little bit more about Jonathan before we get him on the show. Uh, He joined EFG back in March 2017 as an equity analyst. Now, prior to joining EFG, he worked as an equity analyst at AA Capital, a family office where he helped manage a long short fund. Prior to that, he spent five years as an equity analyst at Morgan Stanley Quilter. So he is the guy to know and speak to when it comes to global equities and the valuations. So before we jump in, as a reminder, guys, our chat today is not considered personal advice, even though we are registered advisors at Shore and Partners. Please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute as personal financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Everything discussed on the show today is based on the facts known at the time of recording being the 20th of June, 2023. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's kick off our conversation with Jonathan. Welcome, Jonathan, to Talk Money to Me. We're super excited to be talking to you about the global markets. Now, to kick off our conversation, can you give us your take on the current market conditions and macroeconomic data? You know, from our perspective, we're all watching the U.S., really trade quite strongly, the rally in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. But love to hear your take on this. Is there more room to run? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
what we've really seen happen in you know since the beginning of the year really is that um, a soft landing scenario is really what's being priced into markets and what that really means is that uh, we have inflation falling um, but we haven't seen a big decline in growth or a big pickup in unemployment and that's you know that's a pretty positive backdrop for for equities what I'd also say is that we have had a pretty narrow market in that there have been a few stocks really driving the overall market performance, um, and that's a, that you know that's really a function of more idiosyncratic things in uh, places like the tech sector, tech sector, etc. Um, but more broadly, you know, equity markets have gone up because of the the, the soft landing uh, backdrop. Um, from this point, you know, I'm still fairly cautious. I would say cautiously optimistic on the market. Um, I think there are two things that that make me cautious. One is Valuations are, are high, and there's not a lot of margin of safety in terms of owning equities at this point. And earnings expectations are also quite high, uh, especially if you think about the possibility that we could see a slowdown in growth. And it's not unreasonable to expect a slowdown in growth given all the tightening that we've had happen. Um, we've seen some indications of the effects of the tightening. So we saw you know, some financial sector stress in the US early on in the year, but that really hasn't derailed anything as of yet. But the odds are still there that uh, we get some growth slowdown. And in that sort of environment, I don't think equities are offering enormously good risk reward at this point in time. So from a portfolio perspective, I'm uh, fairly cautious. You know, I'm not in a very defensive posture, but I'm also not in a very aggressive posture. Um, I'm fairly balanced in terms of the risk taking within the portfolio because I'm cautious on the overall market outlook. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes sense, right, when you're getting over 5% in cash um, to kind of be cautiously optimistic. Now, obviously, your sentiment about the markets is really important as you're a global equity conviction fund manager. So for our listeners' benefit, can you run us through your investment process on how you select the stocks for the fund? And if you've got an investment checklist, what do you look out for in a company? We'd love for you to share that with us. Sure. So, the portfolio that I run is essentially a high-quality growth portfolio, and the whole philosophy behind the portfolio is to look for the best businesses in the world, and we have a very specific definition of what that is, buy those businesses when they give us good risk rewards, so they're at attractive prices, construct a well-balanced risk-managed portfolio of these companies and then hold them for as long as we can to generate good risk-adjusted performance over a three-year horizon. So that's the the summary of the product. So what really makes a best business or a great business in our eyes? So really what we're looking for are compounding processes. And what do I mean by compounding processes? We really want businesses that, because of their economics and the way they're managed and their growth opportunities, are able to deliver very high rates of return on invested capital. So what that really means is per unit of sales or per unit of capital in the business, the business gives you a very good accounting return. And then what, what we're looking for is really for those businesses to be able to reinvest the cash that they generate at high rates of return as well. And if businesses are able to do that over multi-year horizons, you have a, a high, high a compounding process at a high rate, and that allows you to um, compound uh, capital within these businesses, and that gives you uh, very 
in general, very good long-term rates of total return uh, when you own them. So the way we identify these businesses is we have a very systematic investment process called the Conviction Framework. Um, this has really three elements to it. What the first element uh, we look at is cash flow sustainability. So when we think about cash flow sustainability, we really look at two elements. One is what is the nature of the industry in which the business operates? So is the industry one where uh, you can naturally maintain high rates of return on capital? And then secondly, you know, does the business have something special about it that allows it to maintain high rates of uh, return on invested capital relative to its competitors over the long run? So that's the first component. The second component is growth. So we're really looking for businesses that have long-term structural growth drivers. So the demand uh, for their products is uh, high, you know, high and growing, um, and hopefully, you know, that's growing faster than GDP. And we also want that growth to be fairly steady. So we prefer businesses that have lower levels of cyclicality and are more predictable um, in terms of their growth prospects. And then thirdly, what's super important about those businesses is that uh, we need them to be managed by people. Uh, you are really good at maintaining the compounding process. So these people have to demonstrate a very good track record. They have to talk about talk about their future view of strategy in a way that really makes sense to us. They have to be good at innovation. They have to be good at fostering a good culture in the business. Uh, and they have to manage the balance sheets of the business really well. So it's really cash flow sustainability, growth and management that are our key bottom-up um, ways of thinking about businesses. From a, from a portfolio construction perspective, we look at um, you know, the, the global economy and we think about where to position our portfolio from a region perspective, sector perspective and factor perspective um, in a dynamic way. Um, and we use you know, um, quantitative techniques to analyze our portfolio and look for areas of risk and try and reduce risk as much as possible while maintaining our exposure to the kind of businesses I've described. So that's, that's overall our process. Um, and it has produced very good long-term returns uh, when, we, when we run it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more on the point about good people. And I love those checklist items um, for your investment process. So now we know your investment process and I guess that checklist. want to turn our attention to your top 10 holdings Really would love to know how long you've held these positions and what's the update on the top 10 businesses, if you pick a few. Yeah, so many of the top 10 we've owned uh, for, for many years. I mean, businesses like Microsoft and MasterCard, we've owned, oh, I couldn't tell you the exact length, but it's definitely longer than three years in the portfolio. But let me talk about a few of them to give you a sense of um, how we invest. So, you know, starting off with Microsoft, it's got... Monopolies in uh, server software, op the operating system software like Windows. Um, it's got a, a monopoly in um, office applications. Everybody in, you know, almost everybody in the world uh, uses Microsoft Office, Excel, PowerPoint, etc. That's what people do business on, and that's you know that has very considerable network effects. Nobody's going to suddenly switch to uh, another platform to do um, you know Excel spreadsheets, as an example. And so the business has got a very significant moat. The other thing that's, that's very interesting about Microsoft is that Microsoft is one of the three large cloud service providers. And what that really means is that there's this big structural shift from operating IT within businesses 
within their own premises run by their own people to outsourcing that function uh, to centralized players where you can get the same performance and infrastructure um, but at much lower cost and with much more flexibility and, and Microsoft's one of the three big cloud players with its Azure platform. The other thing that we really like about Microsoft is some of the more recent developments, uh, particularly around you know its investment in open AI and uh, you know the the rise of AI essentially. Because uh, what we can see in Microsoft, which they've announced, is that they're going to integrate AI into all their products. So we're all going to be able to see chat GPT-like features within Word, PowerPoint, and Excel. And I, I think that's going to be something that improves all of our productivity. So that's one example of a company we really like. Another example in our top 10 would be MasterCard. You know, MasterCard's part of a, a duopoly with Visa, so that they're the two largest payments networks in the world. So essentially allowing people to do transactions without using cash. Um, both of those businesses, but you know, MasterCard has a very big moats in the sense that, that they have big network effects with the number of uh, people having MasterCard issued cards, the number of merchants that will accept a MasterCard, and the number of banks that will issue credit cards using a MasterCard. So you know, they've got a huge network, which is very, very hard to replicate. And they've got scale in terms of running that network so that the cost of doing transactions is, is very, very low for them. So as a business, they benefit from the growth in uh, electronic payments um, as, a, you know, as opposed to uh, cash payments, which we, we see a structural uh, shift from cash to electronic payments globally. Um, and they make um, a small fee every time a payment goes over their network. And that fee is made at extremely high margins uh, because there's very little, if not you know, if any, incremental costs to doing a transaction over the Mastercard network. So, you know, as they grow, they you know they just make an enormous amount of profit on each incremental uh, dollar that they make. Yeah, it's got a very long structural growth ahead of it in terms of the shift to to cash, as well as the use of e-commerce payments. You know, as more and more of us do our shopping on. Online, So that's MasterCard. The last one I'll mention is probably, well, it is a stock that's very much in the news. It's something we added to the portfolio um, early on in this year. Um, it's a business we've looked at for a long time, and that's NVIDIA. Um, NVIDIA is the leading supplier of um, uh, what they call GPUs, which are a very high-end processes for computers and data centers. Um, this is the core technology underlying um, AI in that it enables the models that people are using to be trained and to be used. Obviously, with the, the rise of AI, the, you know, NVIDIA's growth prospects have improved a lot. And NVIDIA does three things which we think give it uh, a quite a sustainable um, competitive advantage. Uh, first of all, it makes these, these GPUs, which are very technically difficult to make. Uh, there are only one or two companies in the world that can do this and that are, you know, at the same degree of performance and cost. Uh, so NVIDIA is one of those. And then NVIDIA has got a very good strategy in that it offers software that allows people to take advantage of the power of these chips. So it offers software libraries as part of its offering. That's something very special and we think that that's going to uh, allow an ecosystem to develop 
around NVIDIA's products. Um, the other thing that NVIDIA does, which is different, is that it allows, it's got technology that allows these chips to essentially be networked together and allows the systems that people are putting together using these chips to be even more powerful. Um, and so the, the three things of the chips, the software, and the networking ability um, haven't been replicated by competitors and we think are quite difficult to be replicated by competitors. And that gives that business quite a big competitive advantage. So hopefully that gives you a flavor about how we think about businesses and the kind of businesses that we have in, in the portfolio. No, it definitely does. And look, those are all really great companies, but they're also really well known. Is there any company in the top 10 that perhaps our listeners wouldn't have heard of? And have you actually trimmed any of these positions into this latest rally? So in terms of the ones I've mentioned, um, no, we haven't um, We haven't taken profits on them. You know, we, we're quite cautious about how our sizing and our portfolio and although, you know, things like NVIDIA have gotten larger, they're not yet at a point where we uh, um, I look to taking profits in them uh, yet. Um, now, coming back to your investment style and process, we know the fund has an ESG screen. So can you tell us a little bit about that process and selection criteria? We know one of your main themes is clean, efficient and resilient supply chains. Everyone's talking about decarbonisation and green energy. How is this kind of applied to your portfolio? Mm. Yeah, um, so ESG is a very important element of our portfolio. It's actually, you know, sustainability, you know, good corporate government, good corporate governance, and and then you know, operating in a way that's good for society has actually always been uh, embedded in our process, even before the current wave of interest in ESG. Um, we're long-term investors, and quality businesses are, uh, you know, score well on both the ES and the G. Um, but what we've done over the last while is we've upped our game in terms of the way we uh, implement this. So not only do we analyze um, businesses qualitatively along these metrics, we've actually got an in-house team that produces uh, an ESG score um, on our whole universe of, of the whole universe of businesses we can invest in. Um, and this score is essentially made up of um, many different data points which are which have been available in the past and new data points that have become available uh, more recently that essentially profiles businesses along the ES and G elements and tells us where how good or bad a business is uh, with respect to these things. Um, and we use that very concretely in our scoring process because you know the, the previous part that I described around cash flow growth and management produces a business score. And then that business score is, is modified by the ESG score before we then think about the valuation. So it's very much embedded in our process and uh, important to us. In terms of what businesses we own that align very well with, with ESG, we have um, some significant exposure in the battery materials sector, uh, which is obviously something that's very important in terms of uh, electric vehicles. You know, it's the core way electric vehicles are powered. So, you know, going forward, that's a, a growth area that's positive from an ESG perspective. Uh, the other thing that, that batteries are very important for is just storing energy. We know that renewables are very inconsistent in terms of their production of electricity, and you need batteries alongside them in order to be able to uh, use them effectively. So you need to store the uh, energy while the wind blows and the sun shines and then uh, distribute that from the battery, uh, you know, when it it's not blowing or the sun's not shining. So battery materials are a really key component uh, in terms of 
uh, ESG that we, we have some sizable exposure to. And the other thing is, is we also have exposure to businesses that uh, support the overall renewable space. So uh, we own businesses in the industrial supply chain that make components like inverters, uh, which are critical components that convert direct current to alternating current and vice, vice versa. And they are very important when you're trying to connect a solar panel uh, to the grid, you need an inverter. So we know that there's lots of structural growth in uh, the solar industry uh, for many years to come, and owning businesses that support that growth, you know, is a is a good thing in our view. And we have exposure to businesses like that in the portfolio. Absolutely. That's very exciting because we're really liking those themes at the moment. Now, in a moment, we're going to discuss the outlook for equities and the global market and delve a little bit deeper into what's on everyone's mind at the moment, AI. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. So before the break, you mentioned that you are long, you know, semiconductors and the overall AI investment thematic, which is great to hear. Now, there's a lot of hype and, I guess, anticipation about AI, but from your perspective, if a listener to this episode is yet to be invested in the space, can you talk us through the AI investment opportunity overall, you know, for the decades to come so that listener in particular can get some comfort? You know, they haven't missed out just yet. There's still time to get in. Yeah. So I think AI is an incredibly exciting opportunity. You know, I think the way to think about what's actually changed in recent times with AI is is to think about the evolution of human communication. So human communication involves basically three steps, creating something to to, to communicate, duplicating that, and then distributing it. So you can think of, in the newspaper context, you can imagine somebody's got to author an article, and that's the creation process. Uh, You've got to print the newspaper, which is the duplication process. And then you've got to distribute it, which is, you know, putting it in a newspaper and having people sell that newspaper all over the place. Now, human communication has been through some major revolutions over time. So, you know, the printing press was the first revolution when we moved from writing to actually being able to print. And and then we went through a second revolution where 
you know, in terms of duplication, we didn't have to duplicate using a printing press. We could duplicate uh, using um, a PC or use it, doing it digitally. So you could create as many copies of um, newspaper articles as you wanted. And then the internet came along and the internet completely revolutionized distribution. So we went from having to read the news uh, with a physical piece of paper that we bought at the corner shop or was delivered to us to basically being able to get that over the internet. And the, the PC revolution and the internet revolution essentially made the cost of duplication and the cost of distribution virtually zero. But we still had this enormous cost of creation because we still had to create these articles, think about, think about them, put all the facts together. Um, and that's, up until this day, an incredibly costly process. What AI has done is really moved us towards making the creation process uh, virtually free as well. So now we can you know, put together articles, put together content virtually for free. And the other thing to think about is I've just been talking about it in the context of text, but actually we can now do this with images, we can do this with video, we can do this with computer code. So all of those things are being revolutionized by AI and zero cost of content creation is going to have very big ramifications. So just to mention a few, you know, many, many, many people who are involved in the sales process have to put together content, whether it's advertising or it's marketing material, all of this takes a tremendous amount of time. AI is probably going to really speed up and reduce the cost of that. Um, so this, the, the, the second thing that's, that's pretty important is analyzing data um, in order to run businesses better, um, you know, detect uh, changes, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now, AI is going to be able to tell us very quickly, uh, much, quick, much more quickly than before, what's changing, what's not working, what to do about it. And that's going to save time and cost if you just think about production processes where one of the biggest costs is downtime. So, um, you know, when a, when a production line stops working. So having predictive AI involved in production processes, working out where failure points are much more quickly so that we can replace parts before they even break, um, that's going to really help in terms of cost reduction. So that's just two examples on the business front that are going to change things. On the, on the consumer side, uh, I think there's, you know, we're going to just have an enormous amount of uh, content come our way. Um, because AI has made content generation free. Now, that's going to be positive in the sense that we're going to have a, a large number of people who have had good ideas but have never been able to, to make something of them because they, you know, they couldn't draw using Photoshop, they couldn't uh, use a musical instrument, or they didn't know how to edit video. Suddenly, what's going to happen is if you have a good idea, you're going to be able to create the content very easily using AI, and that's going to unleash creativity, we think. It's also going to create a lot more content that's not very good, but on the positive side, we're going to have a lot more good content to consume. So that's just you know just a, a brief overview of what I think the the significance of AI is and the impact of it's going to be. And there are many ways to invest in it. And I'd say I'd split up the the, the opportunities into three buckets. There's the hardware, the infrastructure, and the applications. So the hardware is obviously semiconductors. So people producing the chips to do um, uh, to to allow AI to occur, they're going to benefit the infrastructure. So people like the cloud providers to run those models, and um, they're definitely going to benefit. What's less obvious at this point is which applications are going to create a lot of value. But we're so early on in this process, we haven't even seen people really starting experimenting with this and bringing companies to market with new ideas. So that's the third phase. It's the most. It's the least certain 
at this point in time, but it's definitely going to throw up some opportunities. So yes, we see this as a very significant change and a very significant long-term investment opportunity. That's all very exciting and those are some really good insights. Now, we know that we're hearing a lot about AI semiconductors, but I've actually been reading a lot about quantum computing, which isn't, I guess, in the news as much. Do you have any exposure here or what are your thoughts on on this idea? We don't have any exposure to quantum computing. It's, it's definitely something that could revolutionize computing. Everything we've heard so far is that it's really in the experimental phase. We've not seen anybody uh, launch a quantum computer that can be commercialized in any way. So, you know, there are many technologies out there, you know, like, you know, fusion for energy generation, solid state batteries, uh, quantum computing, all of which are very exciting, but they only become investable when they become commercially viable. So we still think Although it's an exciting idea, it's not really investable yet. That makes sense. And it really sticks with your investment ethos. All right. So let's get back to my primary question here. Looking ahead, what is your outlook and perspective in terms of growth, dividends per share and earnings per share within the quality value bucket of the market that you look out for? I mean, are forward looking equity multiples looking cheap or expensive for you? And where do you see the most value right now? Yeah, so if I, if I look at the overall market, and I think you know we our benchmark is um, the MSCI All Country World Index, which is really one of the broadest measures of the equity market. If I look at what's being expected in terms of earnings growth, um, this year we are only expecting 0.3% uh, in earnings growth, and that's obviously because we're factoring in some form of slowdown uh, in in the economy, which will impact earnings growth. And then next year, we're expecting, let's say, consensus is expecting 11% growth in 2024. Now, both those numbers are, are fairly high in a recessionary type scenario. So they can be delivered as long as we don't have a material slowdown and a material rise in unemployment. So then obviously, 0.3% is not particularly exciting. Uh, in 2023, 11% is fairly exciting, but the risk around these things is very high. From a regional perspective, you know, just to give you some sense of where the growth is expected, the U.S. is only expected to grow at 0.8% this year. Europe's expected to grow just under 5 China is actually expected to grow just under 13% because it's rebounding off uh, the effects of the lockdown that we had last year. Asia X Japan is expected to is actually expected to decline around three and a half percent, and Japan's expected to grow around three uh, percent. So the action in terms of the earnings growth is really coming from Europe and China uh, this year, and the other markets are fairly lackluster. So you know, from a from a um, from an earnings growth perspective, I think you know it's quite a it's it's in, it's you know a reasonable outlook, but contingent on things remaining solid. You asked about valuations, so you know valuations are not reflective of the risks of a slowdown. So you have the MSCI Acqui trading at sixteen point three times. Um, that compares to you know its longer term average of around fourteen times. So from a PE perspective, it's fairly rich. Um, if you look at um, equities relative to bonds, and the way we do that is we look at uh, an implied equity risk premium. Um, the risk premium you're getting over 30-year U.S. Treasuries at the moment is around 4.3%. Um, longer term, that equity risk premium has been around 57 which you know essentially means you're not being paid enough 
compared to the risk of owning bonds uh, to own equities. So there's not really a margin of safety from a, from a valuation perspective. If you ask me where I see value in the market, I think the one place that I think is particularly cheap uh, is China. You know, China's trading at PEs that are you know, we haven't seen for very, very many years. Now, there are obviously reasons for that. There's the geopolitical uh, side of things, and then there's the fact that China's really at the bottom of its economic cycle, you know, and it hasn't really rebounded very strongly yet. Um, but if I look at lot for long-term value, you know, China really stands out as being particularly cheap. And then if we don't have uh, any hard landing, I would say that the consumer discretionary sector is relatively cheap compared to history. So um, I don't think you're really massively overpaying for uh, global consumer discretionary exposure um, as long as we don't have a very hard landing. That's really interesting to me because I guess everyone's waiting for the consumer to fall over and it just hasn't happened. So, you, you know, you might very much be right there with that prediction. But you mentioned China, which I want to focus on the Asian markets for the next part here. You know, I guess a bit of a disappointment, let's call it, was how slow China is coming back to the global economy. So, what needs to happen from your perspective for them to come back fully online? And just talk to us more about the opportunities you are seeing in the Asian economy because that's that's really fascinating from our perspective because China is very much, it's you either love it or hate it as an investor. Yeah. So, I mean, China's in a very different phase economically compared to places like Europe and the US. I mean, the US and Europe are really quite late cycle. You know, their demand's exceeding supply. We've got inflation. We've got interest rates going up. China's, you know, got very low inflation, low growth. Um, it's really at the, at the bottom of its cycle, really. But when we think about the recovery, you know, the, the Chinese economy is really made up of three major drivers. One is infrastructure investment by the government. The second is uh, the property sector. And the third is uh, consumer expenditure. Those are really the three. And also, also fourthly, exports. And the, the issue with Chinese growth is really, from an infrastructure and property sector perspective, the Chinese have already put in a lot of infrastructure. Uh, there's not a lot of benefit to continuing to do that. The property sector you know, went through something similar in that there was um, a boom, um, and that boom is, trying to, is being managed down by the Chinese government. They don't want to bust, um, so they've, they've deflated a, the formation of a bubble. And that's basically they've been applying the brakes. And although they've taken their foot off the brakes a little bit, they're not really going to, they're not very likely to uh, overstimulate property development um, and the property market. So really, you know, you're left with um, the consumer and exports. Now the Chinese consumers, you know, the Chinese have been in lockdown. They were in lockdown for a long time, and much, much later and much longer than the rest of the world. And as they've been unlocked, we have seen a recovery, but it's not been as strong as people were expecting. So the consumer side of things is not um, lifting um, the whole economy and making up for the the slower infrastructure and property uh, sectors. And then lastly, in terms of exports, you know, from from a going forward perspective, although exports have held up very well, um, particularly because manufacturing in the in the rest of the world was was growing really strongly, that's really slowed. Um, as people have stopped buying goods, um, you know, we all bought our, you know, we all redid our houses, let's say, in COVID, and a lot of that stuff came from China, and really exports are slowing. So overall, the Chinese economy is, um, you know, coming off a low, 
but not coming off the low as fast as people um, expected. Now, they are in a fortunate position in that inflation is low, unemployment is particularly high, and the government can stimulate the economy. They have scope to do that without overheating it. So we haven't yet seen a, a very significant amount of stimulation, and that may yet still come in that economy. But what I would say is that you know, that's the economic background, but what really matters with equities is how much you pay and what's in the price. And when I look at Chinese companies, you know, particularly things like uh, the internet uh, businesses or you know, the, the exchange, financial exchanges or consumer companies or battery producers, I really see businesses that are bombed out in terms of valuation. So very little positive has to happen for those companies to really produce very good returns. So the risk-reward is excellent in, in, in China. Now, you also actually can get Chinese exposure to companies in Europe. So we own luxury apparel businesses, we own sports car businesses, and we even own some mining businesses that are listed in Europe, which are all exposed to China. They're not quite as cheap as the Chinese stocks, um, but they also um, lined up to benefit from, a, from a, an eventual Chinese recovery. So yeah, China, China because of valuation, where they are in the cycle, is very interesting to us at this point. Um, the other thing I'd say in Asia is that China's not the only game in town. I think um, India's uh, something that's been our, on our horizon for a long time, uh, and we are actively looking for investments um, in, in India. Uh, we see two big opportunities there. One is a long-term infrastructure build-out. The Indians have not built out their infrastructure, anything like the Chinese have, and we think that's a long-term opportunity. Um, and then the population dynamics in India long-term are very positive. They've got a one of the few large uh, economies with a long-term growing population. So we think consumer-facing businesses are attractive. So yeah, perhaps when the Chinese businesses we own recover, uh, we may then use some of that money to get into India. So there's, there are plenty of opportunities in Asia at the moment. Yeah, and you just really can't ignore China and India, I think, moving forward. Now, we know a lot of global managers have a higher asset allocation towards US equities. I mean, what makes you different to other global fund managers? Yeah, I mean, so just to touch on that, I think the one thing that makes our portfolio very different from a lot of other global equity funds is that Many global equity funds are not really global. They tend to, to be mostly developed market focused. So they might have a lot of US, a lot of Europe, some Japanese, but very few have actual emerging market exposure in their portfolio. So our product is um, truly global. Uh, you know, I've just spoken about the Chinese companies we own um, and the Indi Indian companies we're looking to own. So we are a very global manager. The other thing is, is that we are properly diversified from a sector perspective. Many of the large global funds are actually very overweight, um, things like the consumer sector or the healthcare sector, and they own almost nothing in energy, um, almost nothing in materials, and very little in financials. And we actually, our philosophy is to be you know, quite diversified uh, from that perspective to manage overall risk through the cycle. Um, and so we're, we, we, we've got a portfolio that we that's more cyclical than many of the larger global funds and that means we'll do better in up markets they tend to do better in down markets because they're very defensive but we've got a much broader spread of of, of um, exposure and the last thing i'll say is and i've mentioned our process called the you know the conviction framework um, we have a very systematic way of investing so you know many managers are much more discretionary 
uh, in terms of the way they make decisions. And we have a, a team-based approach that employs the systematic process. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we think that that does differentiate us in terms of our long-term ability to generate good performance um, on a team-wide basis. So those three things. Those three things, I think, make us different from other funds. That's really good to hear because you've got to stand out in a crowded environment, which there are many fund managers. So to finish up, Jonathan, I would love to ask you a bold question if I can. Do you have any bold predictions for the remainder of 2023? Now, it doesn't have to be necessarily market-related. It could be a sporting prediction or anything that you think has a high probability of playing out between now and Christmas time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stick to markets in terms of predictions. I think if I look at the, the, the broader markets, both in equities and fixed income, what's really priced into the market at the moment is a, a soft landing scenario. So there, there are two things that could happen uh, where if you bet that they happen and are right, you could make some outperformance. One is to bet on a very hard landing. And the second one is to bet on a no landing. So what do I mean by no landing? First of all, hard landing is very obvious. You just have a very big growth slowdown and a massive pickup in unemployment and a big fall off in inflation. And, you know, you'd have equities go down and bonds go up. That's a hard landing. A a no landing is is a little different. A no landing is a scenario where inflation continues to go down, but we don't get any pickup in unemployment and no slowdown in growth. If that happens, the markets, although they are, you know, rich from a valuation perspective, they are nowhere near priced for that sort of outcome. So if I were thinking about the probabilities of no landing, soft landing and hard landing, I would say that the probability of a no landing is probably higher than is priced into the markets at the moment. So there is a there is a chance that actually we don't have any major uh, slowdown in the economies and we actually get to this inflation fairly unscathed and that would be extremely bullish for equities particularly cyclical equities, and that would be my outside bet, you know, for the next six months to 12 months. Um, I don't think that that scenario is unreasonable. Well, you heard it first here. This is Jonathan's bold prediction, a no landing. Well, let's hope that plays out. So that's a wrap, Jonathan. We really enjoyed our conversation with you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Well, that's a wrap. So as you would have heard, Jonathan really is the guy to know and guy to speak to when it comes to true global equities. Now, if you want to find out how you can invest in the new capital global equity conviction via platform or direct, please reach out to our CFT group at shoreandpartners.com.au. Please note at the moment, this fund is only available for wholesale investors. That's right. But it may become available for retail, which will be very exciting. So that's a wrap to our conversation. But before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shore & Partners, as always, today's discussion does not constitute as personal financial advice. You should always go out and seek your own professional uh, financial advice before making any of your investment decisions. And as a reminder, all the facts are based on the time of recording, which was the 20th of June, 2023. And make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed it, give us a five-star review. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media 
Media Production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 